what a cloud. That's only the third ball hit over the roof in Tiger Stadium, bounced over. No one has cleared it during the game in the fly. Armin Killebrew, Frank Howard, and now Sessa Fielder have bounced him over the roof in left field. What's that? That's a swear jar. Every time someone swears, you put a quarter in it. Who gets the money? I don't know. We'll use it to buy something for the office, like a case of Bud Light or something. F***ing awesome. F*** you, Bob. <laughs> F*** you, Jim. Eric, I have a bag on line three for you. Can I borrow your pen? Can I borrow your f***ing pen? Will the owner of a white station wagon please go f*** yourself? We're going to go down there and we're going to f*** some We're going to f*** some we're going to do whatever we have to because we're going to some poop. Doesn't count. Shut the up. I am so proud of you suckers. Here, here. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. It's inside a can of Old Bay, a dock worker from Locust Point, a doctor from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. Well, Ray, everybody's on their feet. We might as well join them. I think so. Why not? Great feeling. Even Santa over there. Carlos Beltran. Will be the rookie of the year in the American League, most likely. Fouls one out of play. He's had a memorable finale at Tiger Stadium. He really has. What a job he has done. And three for three in this ball game. A couple of singles, a double, and Drew Walk. Todd Jones, one out away from making the Tigers a winner. On this last day at the corner, and we're almost blinded by the flashes as Beltron fouls it back. Somebody 20 years from say, where were you on the 27th of September, 1999? I took this picture. Here's where I was for the 6,000. 873rd game at the corner and that just missed everybody trying to freeze that final moment not only in their own memory but in their own scrapbook that's exactly right off and away there are some people right now Ray running out of film <laughs> I know a guy in the booth that's doing that right now Jeff Moore, doing that up here with us. Get you two. Yeah. Got him. Full game. Thank you, old friend.
2-2. Davis to left and will hit. Oh my! It's gone! From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. I never move in slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other pods are so-so, I'm too like bro, yo, focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard, preach, I'm throwing no-nos, it's going, it's going, it's going, yo, it's gone, your heart just stop, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the pod, scroll it down, then read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dog on your lips, and Ozzy Smith backflips, pick a tip, any tip, get on to it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home, Crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the rhymes are written by hot tracks that mix it smooth with the groove to my ears. Wanna listen? That little cut ain't a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap bag, but this ain't no ad tag. My hobbies are rock, so people trying to be black for that. Bell time, I come out, call the show. VKP and let me turn it out. Yo, name Jake the Snake, Porter 71. Dates, you know what time it is. I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kagalagi. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's good? Oh, these serpentine eyes are smiling. The snake is slithering along in his natural habitat, hunting for all things baseball to consume. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, yeah, it can be a little tough to keep the intensity up in January, February, uh, as you're waiting for these big ass Scott Boris pieces to follow the natural order of baseball and her off season operations. Oh, Corey, Cody Bellinger finally was signed with the Cubs, by the way. Three years, $80 million. Congratulations for signing where we all pretty much knew you were going to be. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's pretty silly that it took this long. But okay, whatever. Yankees made moves for left-handed outfielders. And Toronto inexplicably re-signed Kevin Kiermeyer. That contract has options. Uh the the Bellinger contract has options for the end of the twenty four and twenty five season. So the Cubs, in my opinion, or the team to beat in the NL Central now, are going to be rooting for you to mash the shit out of this season, and then you can put yourself out in the market and do it all over next season. So sounds like a fair compromise, considering you had one team basically competing for your services this past winter. But I digress. It, it's tough to keep. The intensity during these lean winter months, especially when agents are not working in good faith to get their players paid and back to work in time. But it's a new day. Yes, it is. I've been watching 
baseball all weekend and the world is right. I'm getting my second win. Hope and optimism springs eternal. It's abound. It's been awesome having games all behind me as I work on shows again. The stars are in the process of aligning themselves right now, folks. And the baseball universe is wide open. Just waiting to fill our souls with another season of memories for all of us nerds who can't live without the sport. Hello, everybody. It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And this is Backwards K-Pod, show 123, and the third week of spring training before the commencement of the 2024 season. Welcome back for another week for... Uh, you know, all you loyal OGs who continue to humble me every day with your steadfast support of me, as well as any of you newbies surfing the net and you decided to ride this barrel to the shore, thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome to my dysfunctionally functional Seamhead family. This is not going to be a lot of dugout chatter this week. I got more ground to cover than Omar Vizquel at short this week, freaks. In fact... Now listen, share, download, rate, review, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, DiamondSnakeJ.Poppy.com, and I think that about covers it, right? I'm not here to have around this trip through the rotation. Tell Adley to get his gear on and give me the ball. Let's go. I'm going at least nine today. Put your pitch count clicker away. It's irrelevant. In fact... We're going to clear this platform here at Terrapin Station, get you straggling seam head dorks loaded up on my BKP time, Tabachucho. We have a couple of stops to make th- today as I see my felonious feline of a co host, Charlie Guns, is listening to the Reds and Bros. 4 4 the 4th. If you're keeping score at home, cleaning himself on the conductor chair, waiting to get us there. As I look to the west of Terrapin, I see our meticulously manicured field in our old school jukebox stadium. The fans are still coming through the turnstiles, and the boys are taking batting practice. We're running hot this week, but we need to catch these volatile wormholes of space and time while we're getting this good. And we got two time and destinations to cover, so hop on up, and I'll explain as I call all aboard. As our first time and destination this for this week's adventure is 112 years ago, October 1st, 1911, destination Detroit Rock City, where the city's baseball team, now known as the Tigers, are preparing to break ground for a new age steel and concrete baseball cathedral. That will be called many names before finally being called Tiger Stadium. And it sits on the corner of Michigan and Trumbull Avenue. So, hurry, hurry, step right up. Get in where you fit in. Take off your shoes, open your kimonos. Ladies, rip off those bras, put them away or throw them away. Let's do it. Let the girls hang. We don't touch here. Make yourself real comfortable for today's trip. Through time, bending space and altered dimensions. And the reason I'm a little more up-tempo this week is... I want to try something a little different this week. The OGs here know 
that I usually keep the stadium so separate. I keep the modern day and the throwback cribs compartmentalized for the most part. But I got to tell you, I really did enjoy connecting the old Colt Stadium to the Astrodome to Minute Maid Park on my last stadium show. And it really gave me more insight into the history of Pro Bowl in Houston. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself putting it together and breaking it down. So, in that vein, I want to start liking, you know, leaking these newer cribs that we are now going into stadiums that have come to fruition in the 21st century now. So, the story is not going to be as long or as in-depth as the study stadiums that we've talked about from the 1900s. So, to me... Because these modern-day stadiums I'm beginning to dig into are not as storied with barely 20 years of age on them, the story for me as a storyteller transitions from here's this building, here's how it was built 2017, 16 years ago, to how did we get here. So with that caveat being laid out, I'm not only going to give you Comerica Park this week, but I'm also going to give you the how. And the how cannot be told without giving you the rise and fall of Tiger Stadium. So, I'm like the dude hanging out in the corner four in the morning, doling out baseball red tops to the fiends. Two for five, two for five, the dude's got garbage down the way. I'm giving you Tiger Stadium in America, you freaks. So as Gunner hits our portal smash at 1.6 gigahertz of radio frequency on the Spectrum Analyzer to get us back to Detroit October 1911, let me take a few minutes to lay out the path of baseball in Detroit that preceded the construction of one of the greatest baseball houses that ever lived. It was a breathing testament of time to the sport that we love called baseball. The evolution of organized baseball in Detroit began as a game played strictly by the amateur to businesses employed imported professionals to the second half of the 19th century. On August 15, 1867, just two years after our nation's conclusion of the bloody Civil War, the Detroit Free Press reports on an intramural game played by members of the Franklin Baseball Club at the corner of Bobine and Adams. There was no mention of a score. During this time, cricket was far and away the most popular team sport in Detroit. This is during the 1850s. So, it's only logical to assume that many of these cricketeers at least experimented and further with baseball, as did their offsprings. And you may be asking yourself, like I did, well, why didn't anyone keep a score? And the only explanation I can give, and frankly, I'm not even sure it's the correct answer, if I'm being honest, is that the team called the Ben Franklins consisted of a few pre-press employees. Two years later, August 8th, 1859, a baseball rivalry breaks out in Detroit on the grounds of the Lewis Cash Farm. The Detroits, who were organized the year before, were for the most part these well-heeled, somewhat high societal citizens 
who had grown increasingly bored with playing cricket at the club, and they decided, what the hell, let's give baseball a try. Now, the rivals called themselves the Early Risers, as they were hard-working blue-collar folks, mostly clerks and office workers, and because of their long work hours, they practiced at the ass crack at dawn, thus giving them their moniker of the Early Risers. In a way, the whole rivalry began as a form of competitive class warfare, kind of, and it's being played out on these still-sprouting Sandlot farm fields. In the first of several games between the two, the white-collar Detroit's routed the Risers, 56-21. On May 12, 1879, it ceased the first professional game played in the city, as far as I can tell. The Hollinger 9 was a house team of professionally organized, specifically as an attraction for wrecking parks. That year saw the rise of the city's first enclosed ball yard, and it stood on the corner of both of Bush and Brady Streets. And this is in 1879. Although the team was not affiliated with any league, the Hollinger 9 are considered the first pay-for-play baseball team to represent Detroit City. As such, the team's 7-1 loss two days later to the Troy Haymakers. Nah, the Haymakers. Haymaker, Haymaker, headbutt. Nah. The Troy Haymakers, I love it, out of New York. They play before 1,500 fans. It's considered the first professionally game held in the city, as well as being the first opening day. Again, that's May 12, 1879. So, while that is considered the first professional game in Rock City history, The first Major League Baseball game there is played May 2nd, 1881. And by now, the Detroit Wolverines have become the newest member of the country's most powerful baseball circuit on the planet, the newly minted National League. And they would immortalize their debut with a 6-4 loss to Buffalo before 1,265 fans at Recreation Park. The Wolverines would win the National League pennant in 1887, and they would play an unusual cross-country series of games against the St. Louis Browns of the American Association in a precursor of what would later become the World Series that we all know and love today. In 1888, after eight seasons in the Senior Circuit National League, the Wolverines disbanded. On May 2nd, 1894, the team we recognize as the Tigers today were awarded a franchise by Ben Johnson in the Western League. And it's a minor league circuit of eight Midwestern teams. In its first game, Detroit loses to Toledo 4-3 at Boulevard Park. And they would not be recognized as the Tigers until sometime in 1895. And at this time, they are referred to as the Creams. Or the Wolverines. On April 28, 1896, the Western League Tigers 
after having spent the first two seasons at Boulevard Park, they now play their first game at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull Avenue at a park named Bennett Park. April 18, 1900. The Tigers kick off playing Ben Johnson's new with American League with another 8-0 loss versus Buffalo as hurler Doc Amoli twirled a no-hitter at the Detroit Ball Club. Even though the league had become the AL after operating in the Western League the past six seasons, the rebranding signified very little. The AL was still considered a minor league, and it was still a signatory to the national agreement, which meant their players were still subject to being drafted by major league clubs in the National League. So before the 1901 season begins, the American League owners voted to withdraw from the national agreement and were now considered a major league team. For the next two years, they waged war on the monopolistic National League over players and territorial rights. On April 25th, 1901, the Tigers beat Milwaukee 14-13 in their first MLB game in club history and the first big league contest since 1888 when they're the National League Wolverines. And for the purpose of recognizing records and timeline anniversaries, both the team and the American League, they date the team's history to 1901, but as you can see, it took some years to get there. On April 12, 1912, the RMS Titanic, on her maiden voyage from Southampton, New England, to New York City, sank to the cold Atlantic Ocean floor within three hours of hitting an iceberg. 1,502 souls were lost and what was one of the worst maritime tragedies in recorded history. News of the sinking had gripped the imagination and horror of people around the world as it dominated the headlines globally. Five days later, on Saturday, April 20th, 420 Duke, the two new Jewel Box Baseball Palaces were open for business. Fenway Park which I've done a show on the rise of Fenway. It's in my catalog of bangers. And the second crib was Navin Field in Detroit. And both of these cathedrals came to be after Shy Park in Filthy and Comiskey in South Chicago in 1909, as well as Forbes Field in 1910. And, of course, I got the story on all three of those cribs in my archives, right? Two for five, two for five, bitch. I got it all, and what I ain't got is only a matter of time before I get it. For real. I want the world, Chico, and everything in it. Okay, where was I? Ah, yes, the corner of Michigan and Trumbull Avenue, or as the locals love to call it, the corner. And this is the second time that there has been a stadium erected at the corner as this is the same locale of the rickety wooden Bennett Park. Before that, the same plot of land in part of Detroit known as Corktown had been a combination of haymarkets and a dog pound. 
with this new technologically advanced wave of steel and concrete ballparks rising across the nation. It was obvious that Bennett Park had outlived its usefulness as well as safety. Frank Nabbitt, the principal owner of the Tigers, hired the architectural firm of Osborne Engineering of Cleveland, and they were like the HOK in their day. HOK does Comerica. We'll talk about her down the road. But this Osborne Engineering, they had designed not only Navin and Fenway, they also saw, oversaw the missions for Forbes, Comiskey, Griffith Stadium in the district. And they're later responsible for the original Yankee Stadium in 1923, as well as Notre Dame's football stadium in 1929 and Jacobs Field in 1994. Now, Bennett Park was demolished shortly upon the conclusion of the 1911 campaign and construction workers were able to finish the new ballpark in time for the 1912 opening day at a cost of $300,000 which has the purchasing power of $10 million here in the 2024 economy. Even though Navin Field sat on the same plot of land as the Wooden Bennett Fans were in awe with the total, total differences between the two cribs, both technologically and aesthetically. While home plate at Bennett was located at the corner, with the batter's eyes facing the sun, Navin's Field's home plate was relocated to the corner of Michigan and National, which would later be renamed Concord Street, where Bennett Park's left field had been. Navin Field's main ticket booth and entrance, along with the club offices, remained at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull, which gave the crib one of our first quirks right off the rip. As most ballparks, the main entrance is behind home plate. However, the Tiger Freaks, who entered the park at 2121 Trumbull Avenue, its primary address, were greeted with a view from the right field corner. Also, the Navin Field had a much larger footprint than Bennett Park. Early in Frank Navin's tenure as owner, he had a rather contentious relationship with the homeowners on the east side of National Avenue, which sat beyond the left field wall. And he also had, uh, you know, heat with the residents of Cherry Street beyond the right field wall. The residents out on Cherry Street, they charged admission to their wildcat bleacher seats that they had built in their backyards. And if you remember, Connie Mack had that same problem in Filthy with homeowners beyond the left field wall, letting pay fans watch from the roofs for a small fee. And the Red Sox had this problem as well, which eventually in part leads to the construction of the Big Green Monster. Well, that and all the broken windows from baseballs flying out of there. When Navin demolishes Bennett, he was able to raise the house and their wildcat bleachers. He saw he now owned outright the entire square block, bounded by Michigan Avenue to the south, Trouble Avenue to the east, National Avenue to the west, and Cherry Street to the north. But Navin Field bore very little resemblance to the Tiger Stadium that all of us team heads were allowed to see the stadium the way we remember her. 
the multiple expansions that resulted in the familiar double-decked, fully-enclosed classic jewel box was still but a vision for the future. The stands behind the infield were roofed and single-decked. Beyond the first and third baseline, it was, there were covered pavilions extending out as far as the outfield fence. And the only seating beyond the foul lines was the faraway single-deck bleacher section in right field. The first home run dimensions were 340 feet or 104 meters down the left field line, 400 feet or 122 meters to dead center, and 365 feet to the corner right, which is 111 meters. A giant hand-operated scoreboard and left field and kept the fans informed about the out-of-town scores and for those of us who remember this palace, we can see the roof and the multitude of those traditional baseball green wooden suits, uh, seats that would eventually be painted blue. Now, I want you to raise from your memory the green or the blue, however you remember that stadium, get it out of there, and replace it in your mind's eye in the color of yellow. That's right. When Navin Field opened six days after the Titanic tragedy, the Tigers faithful, faithful were greeted visually by 23,000 yellow seats as they walked into the seating bowl. The sole thing that does remain a constant from day one in the stadium's 87-year history was the 120-foot-foot or 31-meter-high flagpole and play in deep center field. The first game was scheduled for April 18, 1912, but rain resulted in a postponement until two days later on the 20th. The estimated crowd for the Cribs' debut was estimated at 26,000 people, but the official pay total was 24,382. Fittingly, Ty Cobb scored the first run in ballpark history with a steal of home in the first inning. The Tigers defeated Cleveland 6-5 in 11 innings. Cobb would also hit the first home run of Navin Field. A shot into the Blazers at right center field on April 25th, which would prove to be the game winner that day. Now, the city of Detroit is starting to boom thanks to the automobile industry and Henry Ford's groundbreaking assembly line concept of mass production. The 1910 census puts the city's population at 465,766. Within 10 years, it had nearly doubled to nearly a million people. So, Mr. Navin begins to realize, I'm going to need more seats to accommodate a buzzing city and a potential customer fan base. And 1922 sees the first of many rounds of expansions and renovations. The infield is now double stacked, although the covered pavilions beyond first and third remain unfettered. An elevator now carries the scribes in the press box on the roof behind home, and capacity has been extend, expanded from 26,000 to 30,000. Additional fans were squeezed in behind roped off areas between the right center field bleachers and the right field corner, and it's slowly beginning to resemble the spectacle that she would eventually become. 
The first radio broadcast since the airways on opening day, April 20th, 1927. A 7-0 Tigers victory over the Browns of St. Louis. As the radio is now the biggest technological craze of the day. Frank Navin dies in 1935. And Walter L. Briggs, an auto body entrepreneur and lifelong Tigers freak, he purchases the team for a million dollars from Navin's widow, Grace. A million dollars in 1935 is worth $22 million, $22.6 million today in 2024. And Briggs wanted to stamp his legacy on the building with his own vision. So, he again calls on Osborne Engineering to take on the challenge of making her the finest palace in the game. The double-deck grandstand was extended down the first base line all the way to the right field pole. He also had dreams to build box seats beyond the right field wall, but it seemed like an impossible task considering that it abutted hard against Trumbull Avenue. So Osborne decides to move the right field fence in 42 feet closer to the home plate, which helped a little bit, but not enough for Briggs' liking. So he tells Osborne he wants him to build a double-decked grandstand in right field, but to also increase the width of the upper deck by 10 feet in both directions. Simply put, so the wall's been moved in 42 feet, and now the overhang from the top deck is 10 feet over the field. And the first row of the lower deck is is also, it's 10 feet under this roof now. And it's projecting high into the park's exterior wall along Trumbull Avenue. The short porch at right will become a prominent feature of the crib as lazy fly balls sometimes found themselves landing in the upper deck and benefiting from the 52-foot shorter dimensions. The new distance to right field was now 315 feet or 96 meters. A new press box was built on the roof of the second deck and Navin Field now has a capacity of 36,000 people. Yet another round of expansion goes down after the 1937 and 1938 seasons. The ballpark becomes fully enclosed and double-decked. Numerous iron posts supported the second deck as well as the roof. And the only unroofed section was the center field bleachers. Three new scoreboards were built. The main one being a jumbo hand-operated joint that looked over the upper deck bleachers. But there were many sections of the park where fans couldn't see the board, mostly in the outfield lower deck. So two auxiliary boards were hung along the facing of the second deck, directly behind first and third base. The cost of the renovations was over a million dollars, which is $22.2 million today. The seating capacity ballooned up to 53000 it was the second largest crib in the game behind only Yankee Stadium. Or third, if you want to count Cleveland's municipal stadium, which was hardly used by the tribe in these days. The new dimensions were now and would remain at 340 feet or 104 meters to the left field pole. 111 meters or 365 feet in the left center field power alleys. 440 feet to center, 134 meters. 
113 meters or 370 feet in the right center field power alleys and 325 feet or 99 meters to the pole and right. The multiple expansions of Nav and Field had reached an end and there was simply no real estate left to build on. The homely, humble ballpark from 1912 had been truly transformed into a grand and sexy looking mix. The only change left to make to the stadium was the name. So he renamed it Briggs Stadium in honor of himself. Briggs did resist installing lights in the stadium, stating baseball was meant to be played in the sunshine. But on June 15, 1948, he finally gave in the progress and technology as the Tigers played their first game under the lights, a 4-1 victory over the Philadelphia A's before 54,480 people. They were the last American League team to capitulate to LED Tech, the last bastion to the antiquated thought of daytime-only baseball was now Wrigley Field, and they would not install their lights for another 40 years. Walter Briggs dies in 1952, and the team was inherited by his son Spike, who would sell it four years later to the broadcasting executive John Fetzer. So with Briggs' family out of the picture, Fetzer renames her Tiger Stadium. In 1958, the hand-operated scoreboard above the bleachers in center field is replaced with one there, uh, one of them then there, uh, electronic gizmos. By the end of the 60s, the old girl is coming under fire as rumblings to replace her as the talk of the town. The surrounding neighborhood was becoming increasingly unsafe, especially during the evenings. The 1977 Tiger Stadium is sold to the city of Detroit and then leased back to the Tigers. Steps were taken to give her a facelift. The interior was given a fresh coat of blue paint. The old Greenwood seats that used to be yellow were ripped out and replaced by modern plastic ass holsters. And they're now painted blue and orange. The exterior was covered in white aluminum siding to eliminate the costly coat of paint that it needed every year. And by the early 90s, all the paint cosmetics could not call the fact that it was time to move on from Tiger Stadium. The city and the team preferred a new venue. The building had inadequate parking for the modern day. And with its lack of amenities and revenue-generating suites, Tiger Stadium had become an economic dinosaur. Despite the pleas of traditionalists with all the top revenue uh, generating baseball stadiums going up throughout the league, the city declared Tiger Stadium obsolete and put her on life support. On October 29, 1997, ground was broken for a new crib across the street from Fox Theater, which, like the Tigers, was now owned by Michael Illich, the founder of Little Caesar Pizza. The Tigers played their final game at the corner on September 27, 1999 when 43,356 fans paid one last tribute to the old girl as the Tigers beat the Royals 8-2. The last hit in Tiger Stadium was a towering 8-inning grand salami off the bat of Robert Fick. 
The ball slammed into the right field room before falling back onto the field. And Todd Jones was able to get the backwards K on Carlos Beltran for the last out in stadium history. Tiger Stadium became just another abandoned building, blending the bleak Detroit City landscape among the thousands of other buildings. It was just left to sit and rot while the city tried to figure out what the hell to do with it. And like this hawking white ghost sitting on the corner of Michigan in trouble, the old ballpark, it just refused to die and go away. Finally, the wrecking crew arrived in June of 2008. And nearing completion of a demolition, the last section of the stadium, the double-deck grandstand from first to third, it just stood there for a while as city officials and citizens they tried to figure out some way to preserve a piece of her dignity. But alas, by September 2008, all physical vestiges of her proof of life were gone. On the day she opened, a 26-year-old Ty Cobb scored the first run by stealing home, of course. And three days later, hit the first dong. And in 1999, Carlos Beltran, on his way to Rookie of the Year honors, he goes three for four for the Kansas City Royals, and he is the last out in the Cathedral's life with a backwards K. And Freaks, I think this is where I'm going to end the Tiger Stadium chapter of our story this week. My boy Gunner is looking at his watch, giving me the signal to break out. So while we go to spots... We will go from the groundbreaking ceremony to now making our way uh, to the groundbreaking ceremony of April 11th, 2000 for the first game in New Comerica Park. So, let me get my boyish treats for a great first segment of Hydrate with a few tubes. We're going to turn the page and go from Tiger Stadium to Comerica. So, stick tight, nerds. You're listening to Backwards K-Pod on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, where we collect ball players and their stories. BRB Cements, meet me on the dark side of the moon. Is it woman? Is it man? And you always see my numbers, you don't dare make a steal. This game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow, the bat on the ball and carrying on the base pass. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball. Keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that ship out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. Is off of second. The one old swinging a fly ball. Left field. It's wow. deep. It's way back. The Tigers are going to the World Series. Three run walk off home run. Oh man! Ojeda has the World Series. He's into a box seat. Oh. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Dean, executive producer of Backwards K-Pod. 
In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fishing Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Ma, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Miguel Cabrera was actually super animated about, hey, you have to protect your teammates when Michael Fulmer retaliated. Wait a minute, here we go. Oh, here we go. And home, Romine and Cabrera get into it. Punches thrown, Romine getting into the gut of Cabrera. And now both benches are cleared as Romine and Cabrera at the bottom of a pile. And both teams storming for them at home plate. Clint Frazier is holding back Gary Sanchez trying to get in on it. And Cabrera's still down. This is not your ordinary best. So there was some severe punching in there. Usually it's a lot of pushing and shoving. But some, they got some good shots here. Just as we were talking about how it was Cabrera who instructed and applauded Fulmer for retaliating, hitting Ellsbury at Yankee Stadium. He's the one who canely threw out here, and he and Romine got into it and fired off quite a few punches at each other before both benches cleared entirely. 
You know, I don't know if this umpire and crew was aware of what happened in New York, but I think Joe Girardi was very correct when he said, why did you throw out warnings after Sanchez was hit? None of this would have happened. But I want you here. Now in my room, I want you here. Now we're gonna be face to face. It'll lean right down in my feet in the place. Now I wanna be your doll. Now I wanna be your doll. Now I wanna be your doll. Okay, nerds, welcome back into the dojo, and this is Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. I'm Jake Robinson. And before Gunner and I broke out for spots, I was pontificating the history of baseball in Detroit that goes all the way back to 1868. I spoke it on the early lineage of how the Tigers came to be, and we took an extensive look at the former baseball cathedral that was known by a few names before ultimately becoming Tiger Stadium. By the 1990s, the venerable building had become old and outdated, and the Tigers in the city, they began looking for new, modern amenities and revenue stream options, and they decided to break ground on a new site across the street from the Fox Theater on Woodward Avenue. And... Usually, I would just give you a modern stadium show or a throwback, but now with these current stadiums that we have left to cover to complete our collection, having been built in the 21st century, there just isn't as much history as or a story uh, as the stadiums built in the 1900s. Comerica is only going on 24 years old. And she is the oldest of the modern stadiums that I have left to cover. So, To finish out stadiums built in the 2000s, I'm kind of taking creative license here to tell you how we got to these last remaining cribs. So, with everything I've given you today about the history of Major League Baseball in Detroit and Tiger Stadium, let's see what we can learn together about the current home of the Tigers, shall we? And that's Comerica Park. The open air, uh, open air palace located in downtown Detroit, and it replaced the iconic Tiger Stadium in 2000, and is next door neighbors to uh, Ford's Field, home of the NFL Detroit Lions football team. The park is named after corporate sponsor Comerica Bank, which was initially based in Motown, 
when the park was christened and opened, but it has since moved on to Dallas, Texas, even though the bank still retains a large and looming presence in Detroit. And just like clockwork, our trusty feline conductor Charlie Guns hitting that post, tearing through that last portal, and pulling up to Detroit, Michigan, April 11th, 2001 for their first game at Comerica Park versus the Seattle Mariners. The new baseball crib is part of a downtown revitalization plan for the Motor City, which also includes construction of Ford's Field, which will be completed in 2002, adjacent to the ballpark. In December 1998, Comerica Bank agrees to pay $66 million dollars over a 30-year span for the naming rights on the New York, which is akin to about $125 million today in the 2024 economy. One of the first features installed in the ballpark was the then biggest scoreboard in Major League Baseball beyond the left field ball. Eventually, with each new stadium produced after Comerica, the size of the scoreboard had diminished to the 18th largest. Well, opening day in 2024, the Tigers and unveiled uh, will unveil their brand new state-of-the-art scoreboard, which is now only second to City Field, home of the Mets. The resolution is expected to be top-notch, as the upper and lower portions of the board will have 14.3 million pixels, compared to the 2.4 million pixels on the old board, and the pixels will be 33% closer together than the pixels on the old board. They will also upgrade this year the sound of the audio. They're adding speakers adjacent to the new video board that stands 127 feet high, 39 meters I'm sorry, 127 feet wide, 39 meters by 48 feet tall, 15 meters. Scoreboard video content is provided by an HD-controlled room with multiple camera angles for replays, as well as pre-produced highlight videos and interactive fan features. More than a thousand feet of LED ribbon boards provide real-time statistical info and high-def graphics to further enhance the game day experience. In contrast to Tiger Stadium, which had been uh, long considered a hitter-friendly park, Comerica has played much more pitcher-friendly. Except for the 420 in center field versus Tiger Stadium's 440, the outfield dimensions at Comerica are much more cavernous than Tiger Stadium. This fact has led to many complaints from players and fans alike, and has engendered sarcastic nicknames like Comerica National Park. And it's huge freaks. I mean, even Evil Knievel wouldn't want to jump this then. Most people agreed that the left field wall in particular uh, needed to be moved in closer to home plate. So, before the 2003 season, the club did that. They moved the distance of the left center field power alley from 395 feet into 370 feet. That's 120 meters down to 112 meters for all of you metric nerds out there. They also 
removed the flagpole that was in play in homage to Tiger Stadium. Two years later, the bullies were moved from right field to an open, empty area in left field that was created when the fences were pushed in. In the place of the space created in right field after the structural move, 950 seats were added, pushing capacity up to 41,070. This crib features uh, many baseball themes, uh, including a monument park and a nod to Yankee Stadium. It's located amongst the deep center field stands, and it features statues of the iconic Tigers, Ty Cobb, Hal Neuhauser, Charlie Garringer, Al Kaline, Willie Horton. And it's only a matter of time before we see Miguel Cabrera stake his rightful place with these Motor City baseball legends. All of those players have had their numbers retired, with the exception of Ty Cobb, who played before numbers were used. Hall of Famer and longtime radio announcer Ernie Harwell has a statue just inside of the building and on the first base side. The first game on April 11, 2000, it had 39,168 fans. And they came out and braved the elements on a cold and snowy afternoon. The ground crew had to clear snow off the field from uh, the previous night of precipitation. But they got the game in. The good guys beat Seattle 5-2 with Brian Moeller picking up the win in the stadium's debut. Ironically, it was that same Brian Moeller who won the last game at Tiger Stadium versus the Royals. So he wins the last game at Tiger Stadium and the first one at Comerica Park. The original plan for that show called for an F-16 flyover from nearby Selfridge Air National Guard base where the parachute is carrying the first pitch ball and the rising bag to the mound, but the nasty, unexpected weather put a scratch on that. There was, however, a passing of the flag to the flagpole in center and reverse order of how they were taken down at Tiger Stadium. Eldon Euchre, Alker, I'm sorry, Eldon Alker, who had received the flag at Tiger Stadium, had given it to Brad Osmus, passing the flag along a line of players to the pole in center field, which again, at this time, is on the field of play. When unfurled, it covers a 150-foot by 300-foot area. And it is the largest waving flag on a, on a pole used for the National Anthem. To give you uh, some of you context who are having trouble imagining the size because you use the metric system, we're talking a flag on a pole that is 46 meters by 91 meters in area. In 2005, Comerica hosted the 76 All-Star Game, the first Midsummer Classic to be played in Detroit since 1971 at Tiger Stadium. Billy Slugger Bobby Abreu slammed 24 dogs in the first round of the Home Run Derby the day before the All-Star Game, and he finished the contest with 41 total home runs. Both were record-setting feats at the time. And he would beat Tigers catcher Yvonne Rodriguez in the Derby Final to take home the hardware. The AL would win the All-Star Game 7-5 with the Orioles shortstop Miguel Tejada winning the game's MVP award. 
on October 21st, Comerica Park hosted their first World Series game as the Tigers lost to their NL rival St. Louis Cardinals, who have beaten them in two of three fall classics. On June 12, 2007, the first no-hitter was thrown at Comerica by Justin Verlander, besting the Brewers 4 to nothing. It was also the first no-hitter thrown by a Tiger in the city of Detroit since Virgil Trucks in 1952. Unfortunately, almost three years later to the day, Armando Galarraga would lose a bid to become the second different Tigers pitcher to throw a no-no in Detroit when he was spoiled by a bad call by umpire Jim Joyce at first base when he called tribe base runner Jason Donald safe at first on a play where he was clearly out. Instead, Galarraga regained his composure. He finished the game with a one nothing shutout. I'm sorry. He finished the game with a one-hit shutout and a 3 to nothing victory, facing 28 batters and striking out three. With sidebar, folks, a perfect game with only three strikeouts. That's pretty impressive. All phases of that team was working that night. 88 pitches, 67 strikes, only 21 balls. It's often called the 28-out perfect game. The $360 million ballpark has the retro, old-fashioned finishing touches on brick and steel, along with asymmetrical dimensions, but she also has a pension for the modern with the sunken and field, rides for kids, and state-of-the-art facilities. Although the park has a much larger footprint than her predecessor, predecessor Tiger Stadium, Comerica seats 12,000 fewer people. And the fans get an open view of downtown over the right field fence. Entrance to the yard is located across the street from the Fox Theater and between two historic churches in Detroit City, St. John's Episcopal Church and Central United Methodist. Outside of the main entrance to the stadium, there is a tiger statue that stands approximately 15 feet high. There are eight other massive tiger statues throughout the park, including two prowling atop the scoreboard left. And these tigers' eyes, they light up after a home, uh, home run by the tigers or a victory along with the sound of a tiger ground. The tigers were fabricated by slow motion ink and Norwalk, Connecticut, along with the brick walls outside of the ballpark are three-headed tiger heads with lighted baseballs in their mouth. And the field itself features a distinctive strip of dirt between home plate and the pitcher's mound. It's known as the keyhole. And that's a nod to the retro old fields that commonly had this feature in very early ballparks. But it has become rare in the modern game. In fact, the only other ballpark that currently in uh, use in the major leagues that has this feature is Chase Field in Phoenix, Arizona, home of the Snakes. In the northeastern corner of the stadium, behind the stands of the third base line, is a Ferris wheel with 12 cars in the design of baseballs. 
in the northwestern corner of the stadium behind the stands on the first baseline is a carousel. The right field of the stadium features the Pepsi porch, and it also features K-Line's corner and a nod to their Hall of Famer, Al K-Line. An LED scoreboard was added to the right center field wall, and the upper deck uh, side for the 2007 season. A giant fountain explodes with liquid fireworks and water geysers whenever the Tigers score and also between innings. There are water shows played pre and post game and it can be set to music. General Motors sponsored the fountain and held naming rights from 2000 to 2008. Two GM vehicles were placed atop the fountain to this time and in 2009 the fountain uh, sponsorship was dropped by GM due to their dire financial straits at the time. The Tigers did decide to keep the GM logo on the fountain, however, and they've also added the logos of Chrysler and Ford with the words, The Detroit Tigers support our, our automakers. In 2010, GM again sponsored the fountain and rebranded it as Chevrolet Fountain. And after every Friday and Saturday games, there are on-field fireworks for fans to enjoy. In total, there are 3,039 club seats and 102 luxury suites. In total, the stadium cost $300 million to construct and is now owned by Detroit Wayne County Stadium Authority. It was financed through public and private financing. Former Tigers owner Mike Illich put up 62% of the cost with $185 million and the public paid $150 million through 2% rental car tax and a 1% hotel tax as well as subsidies from Native American casino revenue. Home plate is north by northwest on Malcolm Street. First base right field runs west by southwest on Witherell Street. Center field south by southeast is adjacent to Adams Street. And third base left field is east by northeast along Brush Street. The dimensions are as follows. Left field is 345 feet from the dish or 106 meters. Left center field, power alley, 395 feet or 120 meters. But it was moved in in 2003 to 370 feet or 113 meters. Center field, 420 feet, 128 meters. Right center field power alley, 360 feet or 111 meters. And the right field pole is 330 feet or 100.58 meters. And the right field wall is higher than the left field wall. Comerica Park itself is built around the configuration of the playing field, just like the jewel box cribs of yesterday. All planning efforts establish uh, fan sight lines as the highest priority. The surrounding building conforms to the property boundaries of Witherell, Montcalm, Adams, and Brush Street. As one enters these boundaries, Comerica Park appears rooted at the center of an urban village. A village that includes shops, restaurants, offices, and other attractions. Eight 
two and three story buildings of varying sizes and heights. They make up this village of outbuildings, which house many of the service facilities surrounding the ballpark. Roughly 70,000 square feet of retail space is included, and another 30,000 square feet is dedicated to Tiger's offices. The result is a landscape that blends into the surrounding street life of the District of Detroit. And with no upper deck outfield, very few stadiums offer a better view of a downtown skyline than Comerica Park does. The concourses are among the most generous of any MLB stadium. The upper concourse is approximately 34 feet wide, while the general standard for the concourses and existing ballparks is 32 feet in width. In relation to their former days, Tiger Stadium, her concourses were between 17 and 27 feet on the lower level, and they measured 11 feet behind the last row on the lower deck and 11 feet in the upper level. During the main concourses, fans are taken through time, like we have done this week, detailing the indelible history of baseball in the city of Detroit. The concourse is divided into different eras, beginning with the 20th century. As fans progress along their walk, they move through different eras of time, decade, monuments, covering two decades each, are placed throughout the concourses. They're towering from floor to ceiling while featuring artifacts from their appropriate eras. As you're heading into the 21st century, there is a walking museum incorporated in the upper concourse. There are approximately 23,000 seats in the lower bowl and 2,000 in the two suite levels. There is around 11,000 seats in the main upper deck. From just past the first base line to the right field foul line, there's a section of 4,000 seats that does not have a suite level. Therefore, the upper deck in this level is approximately 15 feet lower and closer to the field than the main upper deck. Many fans think the name Tigers originated from the one red stripe that ran through their sock, but that didn't happen until 1927, long after the name was adopted. In the 1800s, the military units in Michigan and Detroit in particular, they earned the nickname Tigers due to their tenacious fighting. The Tigers were the last of the charter member teams to finish in last place. While they didn't win as many pennants as the Red Sox, Yankees, or even the A's, they usually finished in the first division. Only four times in the first 51 years did the Tigers finish seventh of eight teams. Boston, Cleveland, even the Yankees came in last multiple times before Detroit did. And that was until 1952 when the club lost 140, 104 games and find themselves at the bottom of the AL standings for the first time. Tigers Stadium hosted the All-Star Game in 1971. Comerica hosted one in 2005. The Tigers have completed 123 seasons in the Major Leagues going into 2024. But, they were founded in 1884. They have qualified for the postseason 16 times 
and have reached the World Series 11 times with four World Championships to their credit, 1935, 1945, 1968, and 1984. And folks, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's show as I enjoyed doing the research and presenting you with all the facts, no caps. Thank you for your patience this week. I know I ran a little bit late with a slight pivot of the original vision I had for the show. It's much more work doing it this way, but I think it came out better now that these new cribs are so young with less history attached to them. And look, I got plenty of Detroit Tigers in the collection. And that banging ass catalog, dog. I got the 1934 World Series versus the Gas House Gang, Hank Greenberg, Al Kaline, Mickey Lowlands, the 1984 uh, Bless em, God Bless Them Boys. I, I, I mean, I got all kinds of Tiger stuff in there. I, I tried to give you a wide template to discover more rich history about this amazing baseball city and the iconic Old English D that the city adores. All right, Gunner. Let's get these freaks home to Terrapin Station where their loved ones have been patiently waiting for their return. And with the history of Major League Baseball Detroit getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra and I chop the head off that beast only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. I will never, ever charge you for the, for the content freaks. Now, look. We've all seen some sweet, sweet swingers in our day. Will Clark, Raphael Palmero. But next week, I'm going to be talking about the sweetest swinger of my lifetime, ladies and gentlemen. Next week, we're going to talk the life and career of Ken Griffey Jr. What a beautiful ball player. I'm chomping at the bit to bring you a story. But look, that's another story. Poor. Another pod here at Backwards K Pod where we collect ball players and their stories. And I told you. I'll never charge you for the baseball content. Information is power. I want an army of empowered seamens. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play bonus subscriptions. When I give you a bonus pod, it's for free, baby. And I got a few of those coming up. I'm not here to dig into your pockets. I'll sell the show on my own. My goal is all about a legacy left behind for my daughter and her children. And I thank you all for giving me that opportunity. I'm just going to keep coming through every week with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like sweet Lou Whitaker, baby. Please share, rate, review. And I'll catch you freaks around the third next week. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch... They got their noses in the phone. They're looking for unproductive AF. By all means, take those little monkeys outside. 
and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless. And win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in that one-on-one sparring session in the dojo a couple years back. You go to hell, Andy Bennett. Me and my felonious speed line of a co-host. Charlie Guns. We're throwing up our Gunner Henderson, y'all. That's our number twos, you nerds. As in... Peace. See you next week with Ken Griffey Jr., dog. <laughs>